I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. 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 I don't like that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Hello, welcome to Book Jockey. Here I will be reading literature aloud. Kind of thinking, think of it like uh, you're in the, the 18th century, sitting around the fire, listening to classic literature. Not classic at the time, maybe. But uh, you're listening to literature being read aloud to you. And it's going to be the classics, so you feel less ashamed of it. Think of it this way. All you listen to all the time is just your cheap-ass podcast. They don't mean anything. They don't enrich you in any way. You have a bunch of classics on your to-do list that you mean to read. They get dusty on your shelf. You've nodded your head and smile when people talk about them, but you don't know them. You pretended to read them in high school. You read, you wrote the paper, but you bullshitted that, and you know you did. This is your chance. This is your chance to really understand and appreciate classic literature. And you're gonna have me to provide commentary as you go. I'm starting this podcast. Oh, there's a cat in the background. This is real amateur, st- amateur style podcasting at its finest. I started this podcast because I was really inspired by Michael Ian Black's podcast, Obscure. There he had a similar premise. There was a book growing dusty on his wife and his bookshelf that they've moved from house to house to house. She had read it when she was young. He had always had it on his to-do list, but never actually got around to it. And he thought to himself, this is my time to actually read it. And while I read it, why not record it? Record my reactions to it, record what it's really, uh, let other people enjoy it at the same time. Um, it makes the whole act of it less of an arduous chore that you know you should be doing and gives you the distance and the opportunity to really appreciate it as art, perhaps. I personally have never, I wouldn't say never, but I rarely experience reading the classics as a chore. Um, There are some, though, that are more dry than others. I would say... I find a lot of the like um, the Brit British kind of. I, I think I, I probably would have found things like Jude the Obscure to be a bit dry. Your Somerset Malls, uh, British literature, kind of dry. Um, but at the same time, I've had read a lot of things on my bucket list already. I was a lit major. My history is that my mom had 
reading list for me of classic literature is from a young age um, that you would add to all the time. And so I was reading college-level books in elementary school, not to brag, but but I'm bragging. Um, so I've had I've knocked a lot off of my reading list already. But as I got older, and as we all do, became more invested with work, maintaining that daily grind, coming home from work and just being exhausted, drifting off to sleep at night with Instagram not really reading like I should. And I want to get back on the habit. And I want to really appreciate it. And I want to celebrate that lit major that I was in college who absolutely adored finding hidden metaphors and those little allusions and and just all the little tricks and fun fun parts of literature. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit stoned. What I'm trying to say is that I just really was into it. I really enjoyed analyzing literature. Um, And I want to have that joy again and experience that healthy, positive hobby again. Um, And I want to be able to do it uh, to share it. Maybe, you know, when I'm old, I can listen back at this and share it with my grandkids. Be like, look, your your grandma did know how to read. I don't think I'll have any listeners, but just to be safe, I'm going to keep things within the public domain to avoid any kind of, if let's say I upload this and they don't want to be called out to have to remove anything. Um, and also gives me an excuse to go further even back into the classics and uh, really enjoy some of the, the older works and really avoid that contemporary shit. So much of contemporary literature is just real bullshit. So it's a win-win, really. It's October, and so I figure that let's dump, dive right in into something scary for Halloween. And coincidentally... Um, I recently acquired The Power of Darkness. The Powers of Darkness. And there's no the. Powers of Darkness, sorry. The Lost Version of Dracula, which is an Icelandic adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, as I was researching this before I recorded this first episode, um, I found out that there's actually quite a lot of Dracula podcast (laughs) and as one would expect based upon the popularity of Bram Stoker's Dracula there's quite a lot of recorded dramatic adaptations and dramatic rendition dramatic readings of Bram Stoker's version Um, but what I have not seen yet and which I think um, will be a real treat for any hardcore Dracula fans like myself is that now we get a chance to read this Icelandic adaptation, which uh, interestingly was has been around since about three years after Bram Stoker's version was published, which was around 1897. This was, I think, published in around 1900, I believe. And 
uh, for many, many years, was completely just in obscurity. It was published as a serial in an Icelandic newspaper, um, and then was only given out as a book, all the compilation comp compiled segments of that serial, of that uh, translation of Dracula in the newspaper, compiled book as a gift upon subscribing to the newspaper. <laughs> it was the, the founder and editor of the newspaper that wrote the translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, and because this book was in such obscurity, there wasn't really that many copies published. I mean, only enough for those those gifts with subscription. Uh, there really wasn't any reason for any scholars um, to take it seriously. There wasn't a lot of copies that remained uh, as many scholars began researching Dracula. Um, I think that they that the the Dracula scholar behind this work discerned that there might only be 20 copies left in the world and they own two of them. And so it was so obscure and rare and around the same time period in the like three to five, ten years after Dracula was published, Bram Stoker's version, there was global translations all over the world. So no one really took it that seriously that it needed investigating. It's just a translation, um, big whoop. And so it wasn't until probably in the 80s or 90s or so that a scholar just decided to translate the preface because the preface was signed by Bram Stoker. And notice that the preface that Bram Stoker wrote for this, the preface signed by Bram Stoker for this Icelandic version was different than the preface also signed by Bram Stoker for the Dracula version. And they thought that was a little bit odd. Um, and then a couple decades later, they, another scholar continued having an English translation done of the Icelandic translation and realized that it um, was drastically different with whole parts of the book expanded far beyond the original. Um, and then likewise, the entire last segment of the book cut down to less than half the size. Um, new characters were added, um, names were changed, Icelandic details were added, called back to Icelandic folklore. Um, there was whole segments of the book there that had took complete creative liberty. And so I'm excited to, to read it because it's been really hyped up. Uh, the back of the book, if I'll read that here, states that the Icelandic Nobel Prize winner Haldor Laxness praised Powers of Darkness as one of the best works of Icelandic literature, drawing inspiration from it in the writings of Under the Glacier. I don't know. I don't know. Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacker Stoker, aptly notes, The Resurrection of the Mocked Mirkrana, which is 
the Icelandic name translated to Powers of Darkness, illustrates another example of Dracula's immortality, delivering all the glamour one expects from a cornerstone of Gothic literature and drawing inspiration from Nordic sagas and myths. Powers of Darkness is truly a major literary rediscovery and a thrilling and essential new addition to the Dracula canon. It says here that um, the scholar realized that the author, Valdemar Asmundsen, hadn't merely translated Dracula, but had rather penned an entirely new version of the story with some all-new characters and a reworked plot. The resulting narrative is one that is shorter, punchier, more erotic, and rivals the original in terms of suspense. So that's what this podcast will be doing, is it will be uh, a chapter-by-chapter read of the book Powers of Darkness. I will be incorporating as I go um, maybe little segments here and there that are dissecting some of the themes that we're reading about, maybe as we catch them, some of the differences between this book and the original, Bram Stoker's version, um, just little commentary about what I'm thinking, liking, disliking, what are some of the metaphors and plot elements that we're liking or disliking, um, as well as kind of getting digging into some history here and there regarding the, the significance and what was happening globally during that time period, um, as well as some of the inspirational themes that Bram Stoker had. Why, for instance, um, did he choose to write about vampires? Why, for instance, did he choose to use Vlad the Impaler as inspiration? Uh, Kind of just digging into that and doing some research as I go. Before we start Powers of Darkness, I want to kind of just give a little fun facts about Bram Stoker. Uh, and his version, as well as this version. Um, so Bram Stoker was a, I think he wrote 20 books, I believe. Um, as we all know, it, he must not have been that popular because I challenge all of you to try to think of another one besides Dracula. So he wasn't that famous in his time period either. Um, he, the, the book Dracula did not even come into any sort of fame whatsoever until after his death. Um, he died penniless. Um, he was a, he had a regular civil servant job and uh, only had some years of happiness towards the end. Um, I think the mid mid to end in which he pursued a lifelong dream to be have any sort of affiliation with theater he wanted to act and write plays and all these things but his family discouraged him and so instead he got a job as a theater manager working directly for Henry Irving who was a mentor and um, a sort of a hero of his so we know this guy was was unfulfilled working a shitty job like we all have to, but having creative aspirations um, and just trying his best 
writing novels, but really wanting to write plays and um, really wanting to ultimately act, but for some reason or other was not successful at it. So he's kind of uh, vicariously living out this dream by watching Henry Irving on stages. He's his manager um, and writing on the side. He had some famous friends who supported his work. Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, Walt Whitman, Mark Twain were some notable friends of his, and Oscar Wilde. Uh, speaking of which, he, his wife was uh, Florence uh, Stoker, and who briefly dated Oscar Wilde before Bram Stoker. Um, and you might be thinking to yourself, what do you mean a person named Florence dated Oscar Wilde? Uh, well, it seems that maybe there was obviously a period where Oscar was trying to present <laughs> straight. Um, and what that instantly made me think to myself was, uh, and there's not a lot written about it on the internet, is that potentially if this woman Florence was a professional beard, um, she was with Oscar and then with Bram, who, you know, as we kind of have learned, was a lifelong theater nerd um, who lived for the stage, uh, admired men and was friends with men um, who were prominent in theater and acting as well as Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman, um, whom he was a huge fan of and would write Walt Whitman letters about how much he enjoyed his homoerotic poetry. Um, I'm just going to go on to say that uh, that Bram was probably all likely also gay, and that Florence, I don't know, maybe she sort of just, maybe, maybe she was lesbian, who knows, maybe she was living a comfortable existence being left alone, um, which, good for her. And they lived as sort of loveless marriage, as is often written, which I think is also usually code for when at least one member of the relationship is gay uh, back in the 1800s. Um, but she did defend his legacy. Later on, when the film Nosferatu came out, um, she filed a lawsuit for the Bram Stoker estate saying that um, no permission was not requested nor granted for the likeness of that character, even though um, the name was changed and some other details were changed. Um, and from what I understand, that film company did go bankrupt from that lawsuit. Um, what I am kind of confused about is that they won that lawsuit. However, um, I did read that part of the reason why we had so many adaptations um, in the past hundred years and so many um, books and movies based upon this character, actually more than 200 films from what I understand, is that uh, despite her winning that lawsuit, Bram Stoker never successfully filed the manuscript with the U.S. Copyright Office on time. Um, and so even though he worked as a civil servant for the government and a paperwork style job, somehow he still missed that deadline. And we should all be grateful because 
if not, who knows if we ever would have had as many adaptations as we've had and this great vampire lore and our culture and uh, cheesy Halloween costumes, uh, movies with Coolio like Dracula 3000. I mean, who knows where we would have been. So moving on into more about the translator, the adaptation author, Vladimir Asmundson. So, Osmundson, sorry, I need to stop acting like this is more hard to pronounce than it really is. So some things that you'll learn about me is that I am, am a type of person who is taking on a podcast where I lead, read classic literature, but I cannot pronounce names or words. So we'll just have to see how that goes. So as I mentioned, the the Icelandic name is Macht Mirkrana. Uh, it means powers of darkness. Uh, it was published in 1901 as a serial in a newspaper before being published as the novel that the giveaway, as I mentioned. Um, uh, perhaps part of my love for this or being able to dive into this is one, I love Dracula and I'll get into that a little bit later but two, I think I've always had a little bit of a fascination with Iceland as maybe we all have just because Bjork, you know Um, anyhow it was a very, very small town Um, the he has, there's writings of his where he said I'm moving to the big city and there was only 3,000 residents he was the journalist uh, and CEO and publisher and founder of his own newspaper um, he was married to a woman's rights activist um, and some of the major differences let's get into it um, there's a 63% longer intro detailing Jonathan Harker's travels there is a 93% shorter ending. Um, so we just really wrapped up that ending, uh, a, more of a coda, if you will. And some people wonder um, if that's because, you know, he was publishing it as a serial in a newspaper. Maybe he just was like, oh my God, this is taking forever. I've been publishing it every week in the paper for, for months and it's not wrapping up. I'm just gonna get it done. Or is it because um, perhaps the the theory, and I haven't even got into this yet, is that this was something that Bram was working with Vladimir Asmundson on, in that as the scholars were researching this, this they found. Um, that some of these changes that Vladimir added, such as um, some of the new characters, new sub- subplots, um, the the longer intro, um, some of these things were actually some of the same things they found in Bram's original notes. How would Vladimir known these things? And the only conclusion we might be able to draw is that somehow Vladimir and Bram met, they talked, and Bram shared his notes, and perhaps 
used this obscure Icelandic translation as a way to get away with publishing another version or a, ver a version he couldn't get away with um, or that he just wanted to release for his own fulfillment or or maybe um, he is a simple honest mistake he handed Vladimir the wrong notes or or it's a it's a huge major coincidence who knows we don't have any record of their correspondence of them knowing each other of what notes Vladimir had um, but it is quite striking how uh, the number of changes match Bram's original handwritten notes about the manuscript. Um, the other major change is that uh, whereas Bram depicted a vampire that a Dracula that I personally love as someone who was taking his conquest and his uh, kills quite seriously and personally, um, Vladimir made a Dracula that was much more vindictive and much more about like world domination. Uh, he could care less about like the personal conquest of Jonathan Harker or Mina. He was more about um, international diplomatic conspiracy <laughs> is how the scholars describes it. He was aiming to throw democratic Western institutions, they said. Uh, he was about leaving Transylvania, coming to the Western world, and uh, literally taking over. Um, and I'm really excited to see how that plays out. Um, uh, additionally, not only did it kind of parallel some of Bram's notes, but the ending more closely parallels uh, later stage and film versions of Dracula. Um, to this day, scholars don't know how that's possible or why. Um, maybe, again, it's a coincidence. This shortened version of the ending is how maybe a, a film version would naturally become shorter, too. Um, or... Could it be that because Bram was so uh, uh, into writing uh, theater adaptations, he also did some stage adaptations of Dracula and some dramatic readings were done in the theater that he managed, um, that he wrote notes for um, film versions that were later on found and used. So I, I, I don't really know for sure what the whole thing is going on, and I don't think they do either. But it would be exciting to kind of read the notes, uh, the appended notes on the novel as we read and learn more. So in the next episode, we'll, we'll be diving in to the text, as well as kind of going over some of the background lore of vampires in general and where this whole vampire mythology started. So thank you for listening, imaginary listener, and uh, see you again. So I don't have a name. For the podcast. For the podcast. I thought he did give you one for the party. Oh. For that thing? <sighs> no smoke comes out.
Um, uh, maybe it's done. It shouldn't be. Um, no, the uh, for myself. I can't just be. Would be anonymous. Oh, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, you're talking about your podcast. Yeah. Well, well, you wouldn't really refer to yourself. <laughs> well, I might have, I might have on or something. Oh. Or I might say. She doesn't have to say your name. <laughs> she hmm. can just say you. Okay. Are you recording now? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those podcasts, huh? Bye-bye.